You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Let's just dispatch with this right away. You know where I'm going. Conservative senator in the Puerto Rican territorial Senate, which I'd never heard of before. Anti-gay, sponsored a successful bill banning uh, adoption by same-sex couples in Puerto Rico. Backs bans on uh, marriage equality. Uh, helped out with George W.'s re-election campaign in 2004. Named Roberto Arango. I would never even be saying his name if you couldn't already predict what it's about to come out of my mouth next. So he had a Grinder account. Grinder is a phone app for gay and bi men looking to pick each other up. And folks found out about it in these pictures of him shirtless and also a picture bent over, ass in the air, cheek spread, uh, cell photo of his anus surfaced. And when the scandal first broke, he claimed that he was just documenting his weight loss. Because he's been dieting. And you know, really, it is the anus that's the first place where it goes. Yeah, I know when I lose 10 pounds, my friends are always like, Dan, your anus is looking so slim. You must share your diet tips with me. Anyway, before we could even get to a podcast, just in the last week, uh, the photos surfaced, his ridiculous denial, not quite the poetry of hiking the Appalachian Trail or lifting my luggage, uh, but his denial that this is my Puerto Rican... Miracle anus diet plan uh, came next and then his resignation. So he's already gone, this guy. And he's blaming his political enemies. Even though when you look at the photo, you, you can't actually see any of his political enemies holding him down in that position, pulling his ass into the air, parting his cheeks for him and taking that picture. Maybe he has invisible political enemies who forced him to take that photo of what I'm just going to go out on a limb and pronounce a very slim and trim looking anus. No bunch of grapes for him. Anyway, Roberto Arango, the Savage Lovecast, salutes you. Hiking the Appalachian Trail, lifting your luggage, the Puerto Rican diet plan. Joining me today for the entire show, Savage Lovecast regular contributor guest, uh, Mistress Matisse. You can read her blog and her thoughts on all things at mistressmatisse.com. And she writes a bi-weekly column, an excellent bi-weekly column that you should be reading. Uh, her stuff particularly recently on prostitution and underage prostitution has been absolutely fucking brilliant. And she's joining me today. Her column, by the way, called Control Tower. You can read it at thestranger.com slash control tower every other week. Joining me today uh, in this glamorous Savage Love podcast studios on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building in downtown Seattle, Mistress Matisse. Uh, Dan, I am, uh, you warm my heart and you also convulse me with laughter. <laughs> I have to say. I'm dying. It's trying not to like just shriek with laughter listening to the discussion of the diet plan. Wow. Um, and I have to say it kind of turned me on to think about guys like holding that guy down and spreading his ass. Yeah, his his, kind of his invisible Casper, the, his invisible political enemy, I, did it to him. I think I read a porn story about that one. <laughs> that's a really sexy idea. We're going to take your calls with Mistress Matisse and her very slim and trim appearing anus, I must say, <laughs> after this. The Savage Lovecast is sponsored by ExtremeRestraints.com, the ultimate fetish store and a fine purveyor of bondage gear, fucking machines, and more. Save an extra 10% and tell them that the Lovecast sent you by entering the coupon code SANTORUM at checkout. Hi, Dan. 
I've been giving becoming a dominatrix some thought lately. I think I could be fucking awesome at it. I have a big personality. I am a physically imposing person. And I not so secretly love degrading others, especially men. So I'm fairly certain that I would love the job. Um, but I am uncertain about how to go about starting it. Should I contact someone to be my mentor? Is there even such a thing as a mistress mentor? Uh, you know, how much capital am I going to need for equipment and, and things like that? Must I wear leather while I'm mistressing? I mean, I'm a big girl. I don't know that I'd look awesome in an all-leather ensemble, you know. Uh, how would one go about telling their parents that she's interested in something like this? You know, my my parents are very open people and not conservative at all, but, you know, they're my parents and that just, you know, I don't, I don't know how to approach that. So um, that's that's pretty much my question. I'm going to jump right on the parents issue. Uh, I don't think you should tell your parents anything about your sex life that you wouldn't want to know about theirs. Uh, yeah. I'm I, I, like, why would you even consider telling your parents that you were a professional dominatrix? I have been one for many years. I have never told my parents about this. They might know. I don't really know. But they don't want to know. And they sure as hell don't want me to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> we're perfectly clear on that. So, yeah, just stop that right now. OK. So I get, I get questions every day at Savage Love from people who basically ask what she's asking. Like, oh, I think I want to be a dominatrix. I like degrading men and – uh, it looks like easy money. Mm. How do I break in? What's your advice, standard advice for somebody who's thinking about uh, going into your field? My standard advice is go into the BDSM community and do a whole bunch of scenes without expecting to get paid for it and see how you really like it and see what it's really like. Because a lot of these women have, make it sound like they have no experience actually doing kink. They just think they would like it. So, yeah, go, if you're in Seattle, you can go down to the, you know, Center for Sex Positive Culture and go to some parties and just let the – because they will – let the guys approach you and go, okay, so let's negotiate a scene right now. Never met you before in my life. Let's negotiate a scene in five minutes flat and then do it and then let's see how I feel about it and if you're happy. That's like market testing. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's kind of getting you a little experience so that when a guy shows up at your place, you can um, you can actually do a scene with him because it's – that's kind of what it is. As a stranger is going to show up at your at your place of work, and you're going to talk to him for five minutes, and then you're going to make something magic happen for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't feel like magic, he will not come back again and and continue to support your business model. And it's really not just about oh, I like degrading men or I like this. You kind of are a performer who is putting on a little playlet. Yes. B- about what the client likes. Precisely. And there is – yeah, it's, it's a business and you can certainly attract the kind of clients that want to receive what you want to give. I mean everyone kind of has their specialties. Uh, so you would sort of make that clear in your advertising what kind of a dom you were and get people who wanted that. But, but you do, yeah. You have, to, you have to make them happy at the end of the, at the session and if they're not happy – that won't work out for you business-wise. So, so yeah, just go and play with some people f- for a while for free. And what about money? Like it's a – you got to have gear. You got to have outfits. You have to have a place to play. There seems to be kind of a, a barrier to entry for the field. If people – if clients show up expecting not just, you know, some neckties and your futon but mm-hmm. a playroom, a dungeon and this some is- outfits – See, this is where that brilliant part about going to where the kinky people already are and, and, and playing a whole bunch is because the beauty, this is what I love about men so much, especially submissive men, is that if you are playing with them, um, they will do things for you. 
<laughs> which is really great. Do tell. <laughs> well, a lot of my uh, – my the first bondage furniture I ever had was made for me by submissive men who wanted me to put them on it and play with them. And that was the deal. It's like, okay, you build me this bench and I will put you on this bench and spank you, silly. And that was the arrangement. They weren't paying me, but there was kind of a little mutual – Kink barter. Yeah, exactly. So if you get into the community and you, like, make friends with all these submissive men and you do scenes with them, you can say, you know, I really need a flogger. And they will either make you one or buy you one or, you know, because they want you to have one because so you can play with them. <laughs> so it's this really nice, you know, that it's, I, say I call it a mutually beneficial system. Okay, but if you had to put a dollar figure on it, if you wanted to set oh. up shop, like she goes, she does some scenes – uh, gratis. Uh, she gets involved with the kink community. She meets some players. Maybe she meets some a few other women who are uh, doing some professional domination as well. And she figures that this is what I want to do. And she wants to set herself up in in this in this market in in, in Seattle. It's, well, no, anywhere, anywhere in the country. I mean, you got to get a place. So I mean, you can either you, sometimes you can rent uh, spaces from other dominoes who have a place set up by the hour. I don't at my space, but some people do. So you got that. But still, you're looking at it's, it's a high investment. I mean. Uh, a couple of thousand dollars with a gear is just basic. I mean, fluggers and some paddles and some, some other stuff that kind of gets spendy quickly. And then furniture, which, again, if you have someone who's a carpenter, even the lumber, the leather, it's got to look nice. Yeah, I mean, it's a high overhead situation. Uh, you can do outcall, which is where you go to them with a suitcase full of toys. It's kind of considered a little low rent, but it is. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I'm not making these rules. You know, it's just what it is. Why is that? Why is that? Um, because it's it's just sort of considered to be the done thing that, that the mistress has her own space and and you come to her. These so, are just kind of these weird cultural traditions. So doing out calls as a pro dom communicates. I think it's perceived as kind of like you're an escort with some toys. Um, there's uh. nothing wrong with being an escort with some toys, but that's. That's kind of the more the perception. You're going to have to work a little harder to maintain that mistressy line uh-huh. um, if you are an alcohol dumb. But it certainly is a way to kind of get capital together. If you but her first to. step is to get involved in her local BDSM community, see what it's about, play, see if it's something that clicks for her and, and it works for the guy she plays with. Right, right. Actually. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 24-year-old queer woman on the East Coast. Uh, I've always been a very angry, sadistic person, but of course you learn when you're a little kid that no one wants to be friends with someone like that. So I've spent my whole life suppressing it and making myself into a kind, calm human being. Uh, Though this has been pretty good for my social life, I have friends and everything, it's caused me a lot of medical problems. In an eight-hour night, I sleep maybe three hours. Um, I have consistent nausea, body pains, anxiety. I smoke like a chimney and generally have a bad feeling in my body uh, most of the time. And um, throughout the years, I've found two things that will relieve all of this, uh, smoking weed and a particular kind of sex. Though I'd love to smoke weed all day, that gets pretty expensive, and I do like remembering where my keys are sometimes. So I've been trying to pursue the latter. Um, so the kind of sex is that I really enjoy rough, violent sex involving lots of biting, scratching, hair pulling, throwing around, all that sort of thing, and uh, with both people involved in it. And that if somebody bleeds, it's all the better. 
So, uh, and after I, after that happens, my whole body feels better. Like a huge weight has been lifted and I can sleep and my pain stop and I don't feel like smoking. My energy goes up and I genuinely feel really happy. Um, when I discovered this, all I could think was fucking Yahtzee. If people get off from throwing pies in each other's faces and they can find each other, then finding someone else who's into what I'm into should be super easy. But I found that this is not the case. And I've spent the last six years looking and have come up completely empty. Uh, when I'm lucky enough to have somebody to want to sleep with me, one of three things will happen. Uh, one, they'll indulge me once and then tell me that they never want to do that again. Two, they'll just lay down and submit to me, which I'm really not into. Um, I'm a sadist, and I like other sadists, and I have no interest in just straight-up dominating somebody. And Or uh, three, uh, when I disclose to them, which I always do about this, they don't believe me. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm a pretty petite girl, and it's hard to believe that I could fucking toss around a grown man. But anyway, uh, they don't believe me, and it scares the crap out of them. So, um, and all of this has been uh, exponentially multiplied by the fact that I'm also sexually insatiable. I really am just up for it all the time, and I have never in my whole life met anyone else who feels that way. So, um, so Dan, tell me, am I just chasing a unicorn? Am I really completely alone? Um, all I want is someone who isn't afraid and maybe even enjoys it if I make them bleed and use their blood as war paint and then is up for it again in the morning. Um, is that really so much to ask for? Oh, well, I got so much for this. Do you? Oh, man. Well, before you get to where you got for this, all I've got is there was a huge media shitstorm about an article called I'm Going to Need You to Fight Me on This, How Violent Sex Helped Ease My Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder by Mac McClelland. Uh, a reporter wrote this story, how uh, violent sex helped ease my PTSD, and it kicked off this justice oh shitstorm. Uh, and you wrote a column about it. I did. I did. I, basically, my column said I, I, I don't sort of recommend using BDSM as a way to process trauma. If, it, if you do and it works, then I, I'm all down with that. And I don't think uh, she's like being unfeminist or anti, you know, she's practicing bad journalism or like that for doing that. I'm glad she didn't ask me to fuck her because I'm really often uncomfortable when people also want me to process trauma with them in a scene because I'm like, okay, I don't know how this is going to go. You're kind of a firebomb waiting to go off, but I think something wrong with you. And if idea. I make a wrong move, am I going to re-traumatize you or are you right. going to trigger and flip out on me? It's not quite what the caller is talking about. She... No. It helps her feel sane as opposed to deal with some PTSD. That, that It's almost like she's talking about uh, rough sex as a form of self-medication. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for her. I don't, let me just say I don't think that what she wants is unattainable. I know I've used blood as war paint myself. It's great. Uh, I'm a sadist who likes other sadists um, a lot. So I have a real good sense of what I think she means by all this. And it's making me smile. I'm like, you just go. The fact that she's queer is going to limit her pool a little bit. It's too bad she doesn't like men because I know of tons of guys who would love this person. Uh, she should be the pro-dom. Uh, but – I would say, you know, 
you have to you have to not be all fucked up when you're doing this because that as a as a as a partner to you would make me go okay so you want to have this incredibly high intensity rough sex and you're high and that's those two things don't go together so be straight well, I think she was saying that she can either self-medicate with pot and then she can't find her car keys or then there's this. Really, really rough sex helps her sort of purge these feelings. You know, this it reminds me of what I hear from people who talk about cutting and what that sort of released for them physically, that mm-hmm. that, that, that self-harm did for them. And it kind of made them feel better and at peace and they had to find a different way to get to that peace. And if she can get there through – Sex and, and can do it in a controlled way. Like my concern when I hear listener call is, okay, and so what if one of these encounters spins out of control? Because if you're losing yourself in this kind of really intensely rough, cutty, bloody, scratchy, hair pulley, throw you around sex. <sighs> so you're, you're, you're smiling. Yeah, I'm kind of smiling and wiggling to myself. <laughs> yeah, that, but you want to lose yourself. That's the whole, I mean, I've, I, I actually know what you mean. And there have been times that I've been doing a scene and there's this little voice way at the back of my head that says, hey, now, hey, you're going to want this person at the end of it. So you don't know. But the, the front of my head is like, oh, yeah. It's just, and that, so, yeah, I know that feeling. And it's just, there's nothing in a needle that could ever be as good as that feeling. So I know what she means and I really empathize. But Can was, she find it? That's your question. Am I going to find this person? Am I looking for a unicorn? Are there other... No, you can absolutely find it. You're going to have to exercise some self-discipline about it because part of this is you have to build trust with a partner by starting this slowly and not going all the way to the top of the mark the first scene because part of how people are going to process the pain that you're dealing out is trust and having kind of been a little bit down that road before. So... And so I'm just kind of wondering if, like, you need to make sure that you are able to have this long-term relationship where you slowly build someone up to taking the level of pain you want to dish out. And you need to have them trust you and you need to show them multiple times that you will stop before it's too much, that you will listen to their safe word, that you will take their needs into account. Because it kind of sounds like she just wants to get in and go for it and go right to the max right off. Mm -hmm. And I understand when you're hungry, man, you're hungry, but you can't do that. But and you don't want that done to yourself either. She says she's interested in being with somebody statistic. I assume that she wouldn't want to be with somebody who lost control and went places she didn't want to go and pushed her too far too fast. Right. And I mean, violated her trust. Correct. Correct. So, yeah, you have, to be, you have to be able to be a good partner. So I'm just – this woman sounds like she might not be in the emotional space to be the best partner in the world. So I suggest she needs to work on that first and – or concurrently. But, but doesn't this – doesn't this tap into some other, you know, non-kinky people's fears about S&M and kinksters? Yes. Is that yes, they're processing does. some, like, hugely destructive, sadistic impulse and you're just the whipping boy or girl. And they could, if they're not careful, go too far because they're not there for you and it's not this mutual thing. It's really like some dark and sinister well, how would you issue in their own head and, and, and you could end up being roadkill. Uh, As well, the, if they flip out. Uh, yeah, that is the case. That is, that is their fear. And I'm not, I am not. I could drink a lot to subliminate this or I could, you know, abuse my children or I could, you know, become Michelle Bachman and try to, you know, abuse a whole nation of people at once. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm not – I mean, 
I, you know, I'm a well-controlled person. It's not like I'm some, you know, blatant serial killer. But I mean, I think everybody has some little dark side in them, and maybe it's smaller, or maybe it's big. But acting just like, well, you just shouldn't have that. Well, that's just not going to work. How do you it? how do you learn to keep it contained? Like listening to her call, I almost would be, you know, if she was a dude and she was into this thing, I'd be a little afraid of getting into bed with her for fear of him, for fear where it's going to go. Yeah. How do you communicate to somebody that you want to do this like off the hook, thrashy sex with? That we're it's going to look and feel completely out of control, and that's part of what I need. But there's going to be some part of my higher brain that's like monitoring, monitoring, in control, in control. Well, I mean, you mean I, I I'm thinking of I'm thinking of a, a submissive that I have, a man who I've been playing with for like 13 years, and I can track that. You know, we've started off very slowly, and I've been playing with him on a regular basis. And now, because I, he has 13 years of history with me, I can do things to him that I can't do to anybody, and it's awesome. So. You have to you like have to go slow what? and kind of build some trust. To, like you can you force him to post pictures of his anus on Grinder <laughs> and cost himself a set. Oh, we did that like, about six months in. That was, <laughs> that was the easy stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to take it slow and you have to build some trust and you have to you know take you take a little mouthful. You know, don't don't try and get the whole feast at the first sitting to take a little nibble and then stop and then take a little nibble and then stop and it's not going to And it's be, often in that process of a little nibble stop little nibble stop that you're demonstrating to the other person that they can right. give you permission to go farther and maybe to take a big leap because they can see in those first encounters your ability to stop right. and to respect an established boundary. Right. Yeah, so that's exactly what you have to do. But there is somebody out there for her. Oh, absolutely. She's not the only one. I know people right here who would love her. Yeah. Yeah, put yourself out there. You'll find someone. The Savage Lovecast is sponsored by ExtremeRestraints.com, the ultimate fetish store. If you want to explore your kinks, you'll find a vast selection of bondage gear, fucking machines, chastity devices, electrosex, cock jewelry, sex toys, and much, much more at ExtremeRestraints.com. Save an extra 10% and tell them the Lovecast sent you by entering the coupon code SANTORUM at checkout. That's coupon code SANTORUM to take an extra 10% off whatever gear you need for your kink at ExtremeRestraints.com. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old female. I was just calling because recently um, a piece of paper fell out of my personal journal. My dad found it and read it, and it revealed both that I had been sexually assaulted last year and that I'm training to become a dominatrix. And my parents didn't know either of those things. <laughs> so they're going a little crazy right now. Um, and I know that I want to continue with my dominatrix training, um, but I'm having a hard time convincing my parents that that this is what I need and that this is not damaging to me in any way. So if you had any advice for me, maybe what I could tell my parents or how we could talk about this in a less hurtful way. I'd really appreciate that. Thank you. Funny that earlier we were talking about how your parents don't need to know, and we've arrived at Parents Found Out. Oh, dear. That sounds really awkward to me. Um, yeah. I, I, I may have to defer to you on this one because I'm like, I would just like or whatever. But no, that was just a made-up story. Do you, think, but do you I, think 20 is too young to be going into sex work or pro-dom work? Probably, yeah, a little. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what she means by pro-dom training, but if you I mean she's really working at a house, uh, I think that's a little young, yeah. Why is that? Why? Uh, 
this is graduate school sexuality. I mean, I think I call it varsity. <laughs> well, you're right. Yeah, it's this is this is all the normal types. You know, complexities of sexuality overlaid with this even more complex emotional psychological dynamic. And, and it I, helps to know yourself, right? And if you're coming off, caller. Uh, an experience where you were sexually assaulted or abused in some way and then layering on top of that. And if that was recent, however, I think healthy or over it you might feel, you could be wrong. A lot of people who have experienced sexual assault or abuse uh, will feel like they've dealt with it, feel like they're on top of it, that, that the issue is resolved. And then it resurfaces. So if the sexual assault, you know, on top of your already being very young was recent, I would kick the pro-dom can down the road a ways yeah. just to make certain. Yeah. I, w- I would advise that too, definitely. I, that made me a little uncomfortable hearing that. So. And maybe your parents that – maybe that's what your parents need to hear. And I'm sorry. If that slip of paper fell out of your notebook and your parents found it, I'm just going to infer that you are living with mom and dad. Yeah. And I don't know if you're someone who's, you know, just only just 20, uh, recently experienced uh, a sexual assault and living with mom and dad is in a position emotionally or socially where they can enter into sex work. Sex work can be tough and kind of you have to be oh my God. really yeah. kind of self-possessed and really know yourself coming and going and backwards and forwards so that you can enter into this arena where – you're making yourself extremely vulnerable to people who may have issues of their own and you need to have like force fields on full kind of – and I don't know if you're capable of that at 20 living with mom and dad and perhaps still reeling. Perhaps. I'm not saying that you are or must be from, from, a, from a really negative sexual experience. Well, she was at least writing about it, which indicates something. That's just uh, thinking about it and processing it. Right. Yeah, I would back off a little bit. I mean, I, 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 the phrase "make yourself vulnerable." I'm like, you're at least going to come in contact with people who don't have good boundaries, uh, and yours are going to have to be really awesomely ironclad. And you're also going to be able to kind of have this emotional well of stuff that you can give to people like that without kind of impacting your own emotional growth. And if if you if you sort of need all of your emotional energy to, to grow and to you know like become an adult because you're only 20 years old. You're not – you should not be diverting that kind of work to helping other people facilitate their sexuality. You know, we're sex positive and you and I are both sex worker positive. Uh, That said, you know, I have a friend who did uh, just foot fetish escort work in New York City. That's all he did. Really, his – his all his sex work was ankles down, <laughs> nothing else. And I, you know, when he told me he was going to do it, I was like, "Are you sure? It doesn't, you know, you're doing this from I, th- I thought a position of weakness. You're just broke and kind of desperate." And it's like I just think that's the wrong reason. But he did it, and a lot of people in this economy have, and it was really shredding. And he never had to be naked, and he never had to uh, service anyone sexually. He didn't have to process like all body play issues. Just ankles down. And uh, some of the guys that he encountered were so driven by shame and self-loathing that he felt splattered by their shame and self-loathing. And he wasn't in a place emotionally where he could deal. And I just can't imagine that a 20-year-old girl living at home who was recently sexually assaulted is emotionally strong enough where she's going to not get splattered by some self-loathing or shame. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, that's, that's a bad situation or at least a potentially bad situation. So we are sex worker, sex work, pro-dom positive folks, and we think 
it's not the right move for you at this time. I hate to come, I hate to agree with mom and dad, <laughs> but I think uh, I think we both yeah, agree think, with mom yeah, and dad here. Just, just back off a little time. Take a little time. You can come back to it. It'll still be here, believe me. And so for right now, what to tell your parents is what you asked, what to tell them. Tell them you've reconsidered and you're not doing it. Right. And then if in five or ten years you re-reconsider and decide to go after it, you'll have, we'll, we'll have your back then. <laughs> and you will not have to tell mom and dad anything. Just don't. Because you won't be living at home. Hi, Nan. I'm a 25-year-old um, kinky GGG girl. And I am having an issue with um, not my boyfriend but with past experience. Um, when I was little, my brother molested me when I was sleeping, and it was a combination of scared and it being really dark and not knowing what was going on, um, and I've come up with some problems. Um, my boyfriend and I have been in kink um, since, like, about a month after we've been together, and we've been exploring it together. The issue is that I keep getting triggered when he blindfolds me or tickles me or things like that and I don't know how to stop it and I feel like it's kind of crushing him because it's probably about every third or fourth time we play together that he um I have to safe word out and kind of I feel like I'm creating a mess for him and I don't really know what to do because I love him and I want to play with him and I feel like kink is part of my lifestyle but I don't know how to not trigger this. So it sounds like she's sort of getting triggered by kind of certain situations. I mean, my my first instinct say, well, then don't you know if you, if blindfolding you makes you freak out, then don't use blindfolds. And tickling, which is sort of a you know, she says she was abused uh, and molested by her brother, and you could you know you can easily imagine that. Sibling sexual abuse can start with, uh, you know, roughhousing as the cover uh, mm-hmm. for the abuser. That it's just tickling, and you know, and then it escalates from there. And I think you can rule shit out. You can say this yeah. is something that I can't do because it's always a trigger for me. And if you know, if the person you're with is into tickling, and tickling's a trigger for you, that's not going to work so well. That's yeah. not going to work. No. no. Yeah, I mean, the thing about BDSM is you can kind of craft it any way you want to, and certainly it can be very sort of deliberate and stately, and there will not be roughhousing or kind of this kind of random chaotic movements. It's like it's certainly possible to play that way. So, so yeah, I'm kind of not understanding why she and her partner can't just carve these things out, unless, of course, she's just citing tickling and blindfolding as triggers, and yet, uh, you know, what's happening is whatever they do, a third of the time. She's, you know, experiencing trigger where, you know, she flips into, you know, these panic attack because it resembles in some way emotionally the sexual abuse. In which case, I don't think you're over it and you need a therapist perhaps for now and not a boyfriend that you need to play with a therapist. Yeah, because you can, yeah, you can work on that kind of thing. I mean, I, I have seen people kind of get over that kind of trauma at least and not have the, the intense physical reaction. You might still think of things, but they don't freak you out anymore. Also, uh, you know, particularly when you're the sub, sometimes it's counterintuitive to say this or people don't naturally go there. You have an absolute right to rule something out forever, yeah. to say this is a this is a, something, a sex act that I don't enjoy for whatever reason and just say I'm, I'm not into that in such a huge way that I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I consider myself a pretty sexually healthy person and there are ways I don't like to be touched. 
And I'm not working on those. I'm fine with those uh, ways in which I don't want to be touched and I'm not touched in those ways. And that's fine. I guess I sort of presume that everyone had a no list. But, yeah, you, you can definitely have a, like, no, not ever these things list. And and you'll run into people who will sort of take those things as a challenge and you can kind of say, yeah, well. Fuck off. Now you're on my no list. So. <laughs> <laughs> but if your problem is you have this sort of you don't know list where you don't know what's going to set you off and it's this yeah. free-floating sexual anxiety uh, and free-floating kind of you know moments of panic that just hit you regardless of what you're doing – then that's something I think you need to unpack with a counselor yeah. uh, and ask your boyfriend to back way the fuck off. Yeah, definitely. My question is, how do you get a dom to fall in love and keep you? I've met this fantastic guy, 48 and 43. We enjoy each other. Everything's perfect in and out of the dom relationship. Um, we spill it out a little bit in public, but inside it's terrific. But at 48, how do you make somebody fall in love with you and want to keep you as a slave? Um, I really like this guy and want to know how to keep him. It's fantastic, but I don't never wanted to keep it down before. If I knew the answer to this question, oh, man. <laughs> how do you make someone fall in love with you? I think in Midsummer Night's Dream, there's some flower that you squeeze in somebody's eye and then they're <laughs> hopelessly in love with the next thing that they look at. Um, but that thing doesn't exist in real life. I saw that in Star Trek too, but yeah, it didn't go so well for them either. Uh, yeah, I, people ask me the kind of thing all the time as well. I'm like, if I had a magic potion for this, you know, I'd be sitting next to the couch on Oprah. I guess I wouldn't be anymore since it's there. <laughs> but but yeah, and and the fact that he's a he's a dominant near submissive does not change like the how you fall in love with thing. It's at totally all. irrelevant. Right. And uh, although some people who aren't all there. I think in the BDSM community, some submissives will mistake a willingness to do anything with a kind of uh, – that that's going to be so intoxicating that a dom can't help but fall in love with you if you are just uh, – if you have no limits. Right. And that ain't true. Not at all. I mean, no, I mean you can certainly see that played out in, in kind of vanilla relationships too where the, you know, the woman will do anything for the man. and you know, So, yeah, that, that never works. In fact, I think it's really um, the opposite. It kind of makes you repulsive in a way because somebody doesn't want to – I don't think people, even doms, intuitively want to be with someone who isn't a whole person, who isn't all there, who who isn't going to be – uh, you're equal on some emotional level, or at least a challenge, if not an equal on some emotional level. Well, you know that no one really, really has no limits. You're like, okay, what, what, there's got to be a catch here somewhere. And I, when, if I can't see the trap, then I kind of get more nervous. Like, what is it? What is it? I'm going to run into something, or, or there's an agenda here or something. It's not normal not to have limits. All you can do in this situation is tell the person how you feel, that you're open to a relationship, that you'd love to be able to – you would want this relationship to grow beyond what it is now to some more lasting, loving bond and you're open to that. And if they're open to that too, hearing that from you may uh, inspire them or, or, or cause them to look at you differently or see more potential in the relationship than they had before or it may cause them just to level with you and say, I don't see you that way and I never will. Right, and then you know. Cause, but yeah, I mean, a man or, or, or nobody, nobody sheds however many years of societal conditioning when they pick a pair of handcuffs. They are a kinky person who has this underpinning of all the normal kind of romantic ideas about how love works and what makes them fall in love and how that feels to them. So uh, that's all still in play. None of that goes away when you start getting into BDSM. So it's all the same.
Hello, this is 29-year-old lesbian, and in my past, I was in a BDSM relationship where I discovered that I absolutely love to be dominated. Now, I'm a naturally centered, headstrong, independent, maybe even stubborn woman, (laughs) and I find that in a relationship, I'm generally the dominant one, and I've looked for a woman who is strong enough to dominate me like my ex was, and what ends up happening is that they want me to stop them. And I do enjoy being versatile and playing on occasion, but I want a strong enough woman to dominate me. So without searching for a dominatrix per se, I was wondering if you might have any suggestions on how or where to find these women. So we'll wrap this one up with a a slow pitch right over the plate. Where are the (laughs) dominant women, dominant dykes? (laughs) Well, I think you'd probably find them in the BDSM community. No way. I know, seriously. They're not at the Walmart or the craft shop? (laughs) But it's harder to spot them. Uh, Yeah, this is like the whole like lesbian BDSM community in a nutshell right there, what she said. It's like, I I want to find a top. How do I find a top? Because everyone wants to bottom because there are – at least to the naked eye and to the you know the common perception, a lot more bottoms in the world generally than tops, which is why people like me have a career. It's a supply and demand <laughs> issue. It's, it's yeah. pure Adam Smith. <laughs> so yes, the the, you know, the queer women's community is smaller than the you know pansexual. Uh, so that's just there's not that many women. So you're not what you're experiencing is not at all unusual, uh, and you got to just keep kissing a lot of you know kinky queer women frogs, and one of them will turn into your Dominant princess. That's a really bad analogy. But, uh, <laughs> so how many how many uh, BDSMers in a relationship are two subs who take turns? Oh, probably a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, think. if there's this real supply and demand problem where there's many, many, many more subs than doms. Yeah, how I mean, does that how does that work out in the end? Well, there's sort of a scale. I mean, you can be a little bit dominant, but kind of mostly a sub, or you can be all a sub, and so you kind of find someone who's a little more dominant than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, or you can be two subs in a relationship who run around looking for tops to top both of them. I see that a lot. Do you? Yeah. Among lesbians or just generally? Um, kind of both. But certainly, when I was in the lesbian community, I knew any number of couples who kind of operated that way. And and since I I was like a you know budding young top, I would sort of get these these couples. I was like, oh great, it's like a two for one deal. <laughs> and it's kind of awesome. And they usually knew a hell of a lot more about kinks than I did. So they could kind of, you know, like one of them would maybe co-top along with me a little bit to kind of show me some things. And then, you know, I would do things to them. And so if you had to, you can be a little creative about it. Is there any but. videotape of this we could put up on the blog? <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners are going to want to see that tape in particular. You just want to see him with a bi-level haircut, don't you? Yeah, you know you do. Uh, no is the answer to that question. Um, I'd love to see that video personally. And there are some bad pictures of me floating around with some bad hair. Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I will kill anyone who tries to air any of those videos, just saying. Uh, so, so yeah, just keep, keep going out there, keep trying, but uh, and and be willing to kind of switch, take turns, um, and uh, recognize that yeah, there's a lot, a lot of bonds. Over the years, you know, talking to people who are who are kinksters and answering a lot of letters, so many kinksters seem to label under this, you know, there's this dom that they've been masturbating about all their lives, and they're holding out for that person to come along, and it's sort of like this dom unicorn. Yeah, you're going to wear out a lot of D-cell batteries waiting for that to happen because it doesn't happen. The, I mean, same, the same thing that applies to vanilla people applies to you. There's no settling down without settling for. You're not going to find your ideal anybody. Yeah, and there's no like magical land of Shangri-La where all these people are that you'll just kind of go in and, and it'll just happen without you even trying. I'm afraid, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to at least adapt, 
I would say we have to adapt your. And you'll come close, and you'll find somebody who can rise to the occasion, and 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 maybe you know if you look long enough and hard enough, you might you know Yahtzee and hit the jackpot, or. You know, often I think in some public S&M relationships, what appears to be two people hit the jackpot from the outside, but you don't know what their private negotiations were like. You don't know what the dynamics inside the relationship were like. They might present themselves at fetish parties as this idealized sort of dom-sub couple. When they go home, for all you know, like all the gear comes off most of the time and one of the pers- – the, the person who's dom is sort of like playing a, a role that was dictated by the sub. You just don't know. And so you should not – I think some people in the BDSM land that I hear from have gone to the parties, have gotten involved in the community and see these relationships and think my relationship isn't like that relationship and that's the kind of relationship I want. And you may actually not be too far from having that relationship because that relationship may not be what it's been packaged to appear. Yeah, I definitely – I agree with that a lot. And I also think there's a line between like you can have a really hot scene with someone and you can have someone that you can live with every single day that you can get along with. Those are probably not going to be the same person all the time <laughs> because, yeah, someone can throw a really hot, hot, hot scene and fuck you six ways to Sunday and be a complete pain in the butt to try and live with on a kind of moment-to-moment basis when you have to like wash the dishes and walk the dog. Uh, and the person who and that kind of domesticity can undermine a dom sub oh, dynamic. It does, yeah, it really does, in my opinion. I mean, so, I, I'm going to hate me off of this, but I, I don't think that kind of yeah, the kind of hot dom sub thing does not last. Domestic way. discipline, yeah, forget. No, it. it doesn't work for you. Um, well, I don't, I don't. It doesn't work for me. I mean, maybe like on a, on a small level, you can kind of like, but not like every single minute of every single day. No, that does not happen. That's a fantasy. It goes away. It's just it can't. So if you want to preserve that, don't like live with a person. Don't you know set up this little cozy thing. And it's like drugs. <laughs> if you really like what E does for you, you only use it once in a while. Exactly. You don't use E every day. That's a very good example. If you, yeah. your dom is a drug and you can't have it every day, or you're going to ruin it. Yeah, it won't be the same. So we've talked a bit about getting involved. You know, go go to a play party, get involved in the kink scene. Uh, just for you're, you're Seattle, I'm Seattle. For listeners in Seattle who are curious, where's the entry point? How do they get involved? Well, the uh, the easiest entry point would be the Center for Sex Positive Culture right here in Seattle, um, uh, formerly known as the Wet Spot. I'm still having a hard time training myself to not say the Wet Spot, but I am learning. I find that really easy, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> you would. Yes, yeah, Center for Sex Positive Culture. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure we have a URL that I could think of that. It's, it's like... Google it. Yeah, Google it. You really. lazy worm. Just go fucking Google <laughs> it. <laughs> they have a huge calendar of events. It's a really welcoming place. They have you know orientation and they, you know you don't have to worry about I won't know what to do. They will tell you exactly what the rules are and how to operate in that. And your first meeting, some people have this anxiety that they'll show up and there'll be some under pressure to play or to be sexual. Oh, no, no, and no. you know a, a brunch or an orientation meeting or a membership meeting, nobody's playing and it's very low key and very low stakes. Very, very I agree. Okay, Mistress Matisse, you can read her every week, thestranger.com slash control tower every other week. You can read her every day at her own blog at mistressmatisse.com. Thanks so much. It's always great having you. Thank you for having me, Dan. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to call with a question or comment for a future show, give us a ring. Thestranger.com slash lovecast, where you can comment on every show. Uh, we can't get to every phoned-in comment, so if there's something you just got to say about a particular show, an argument you just got to make, go to thestranger.com slash lovecast. 206-201-2720, that's the number. Me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth will be back at you next week. Another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for downloading.